from Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital. This is Medically Necessary. Welcome to Medically Necessary, the official podcast of the Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital Medical Staff. I'm Chris Honig, joined as always by Dr. Jim Salwitz. Dr. Salwitz, another beautiful day in the medical neighborhood. Chris, it's nice to see you. I hope you and yours are well. As with yours. And you know, it's it's great that now that we are fully vaccinated, the CDC out with their guidance for fully vaccinated people, we could actually be together in a room without masks. We could hug. It is so nice to kind of get that little bit of normalcy back. It is, Chris, but unfortunately that does mean I have to start showering again. Ah, that's what the smell was. <laughs> I was wondering. I was wondering. We've been keeping your office door closed just yeah, in case. But oh, we no, weren't really actually, sure. It's just because you didn't like me, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, this is, we laugh right now, but this is a very serious, a special episode of Medically Necessary here. We're looking at an initiative that is so key to what Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas Health is. And with that, I want to welcome our guest this week, Celeste Warren. She's the Vice President of the Global Diversity and Inclusion Center of Excellence for Merck. She's also a member of our RWJ Barnabas Health Corporate Board of Trustees and one of ROINJ's influencers, a difference maker on the People of Color list for 2020. So congratulations on that. Thank you. And also, before we get into the, the conversation here, I just want congratulations to Merck. What an awesome bit of news that came out a couple of weeks ago. Merck and J&J working together with the U.S. government to help produce the COVID-19 vaccine. And uh, obviously, two great New Jersey-based institutions, Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital. Of course, we have a wonderful past with Johnson & Johnson, but it is so great to see two rival institutions in New Jersey working together on such a worthy cause. You know, when you get to this point of the pandemic and you're trying to save lives, you have to throw competition out the side and, and come together to be able to do just that, save and improve lives. So I'm glad that this partnership is coming to fruition. And we talk about saving and improving lives. You are also the chair of the board's Ending Racism Together Committee, this initiative to create an anti-racist corporation in RWJ Barnabas Health, so vital to the future of this company, of this industry of healthcare, and to really our culture, to our country, to our world. And obviously working at Merck, that is, I can tell you from my past life, having worked in the DNI space myself, a model organization, DNI at Merck is, is not just a business model, it's a business mandate. And you guys really take a leadership with that. And you're able to bring that experience to RWJ Barnabas through the board. I am lucky to have the opportunity to, uh, to work with Barry Ostrowski and the rest of the board. And, and when he asked me to take this on and chair this committee, the subcommittee of the board, the first thing that was running through my thought was, I'm already on two committees. Can I do a third one? <laughs> but this one is so critical and it's so near and dear to my heart. And it's, it's my passion. I absolutely, and, and you know, we know that we can't say no to Barry. So, <laughs> um, so I said, yes. And, and it has been, um, it's been great from the standpoint of, first of all, the leadership that Barry is demonstrating in driving this 
and his commitment and his passion around, around diversity and inclusion has just been phenomenal for a CEO and a role model for other CEOs. And then the team that is, that is um, working within RWJ Barnabas, the committee, uh, the management committee is doing a spectacular job. We just had another subcommittee meeting this morning and the way that they're approaching it is very holistic. It's very multidimensional and you can't, it just proves that you can't approach it in one way because this is a problem, a challenge that has been going on for centuries and it's not going to be fixed overnight, but if you, but you have to take an intentional approach to it. And, and I just salute Deanna, Vincent, and the rest of the team for the work that they've been doing. So I think, uh, Ms. Warrior, you, know, you point out that Barry, from the very start, from the moment we came together as an organization, now almost five years ago, made DNI a core value for the organization and has continued, obviously, to, to push that forward more and more as we, you know, as we go forward and making that a core of who we are, how we become strong, how we serve you know, our communities, how we make our communities you know, healthier. So what are the kind of concepts, directions that you see you know, this committee, but also more broadly the organization going forward you know, as we start to really build formal structure to make this happen? Well, they're approaching it in a very um, planful and purposeful way. There are, they're in the formation stages right now, but they've, they've written the charter and they have four, what they're calling strategic goals. The first is around the patients and making sure that all patients, regardless of whatever dimension of diversity they come from, whatever community they come from, whatever culture they come from, that they're afforded safe, high quality, equitable and anti-racist care, which I think is the, the cornerstone of um, what RWJ Barnabas is about. So that's the first one. The second one, they look, they're looking at the workforce, the internal workforce, and making sure that the workforce has the uh, opportunities, the aspirations, the potential, that everyone has that um, within the workforce to be able to achieve whatever career aspirations they might have, to be able to um, elevate their voices so they're heard without fear of retaliation or retribution. Um, that they're able to um, have a culture within the organization that is one of inclusion and empowerment. And so that's the second goal. The third area that they're working at, and we just heard a little bit about this this morning, is around communities and looking at the communities from the perspective of um, the health, the social determinants of health. And so looking around the patient, not just the health of the, of the patient, but what are some of those things in their, their uh, ecosystem that are um, barriers to them being able to get the ultimate healthcare that they need to? So um, they're looking at the communities and, and different aspects of uh, income, family income, housing, what's in the neighborhoods, what's in the communities. So all of those things are what we call social determinants of health and, and, and very important. And then the last area is looking at the operational processes, practices, policies, procedures that, that fall outside of the three areas of patients, workforce, and communities that they might need to address that are 
on the onset, not intentionally, but they may be unintentionally causing challenges when it comes to equity and inclusion within the health system. And so that involves looking at uh, funding and, and um, found the foundation and, and where grants and what the, where they're going to, what projects, what initiatives, what organizations. Um, uh, as an example, supplier diversity, for example, um, and, and the work that's being done there with vendors and suppliers, uh, which has an impact on, on the economy. So those are just a few of the things that, that they're working on. But those are the four strategic goals around patients, workforce, communities, and uh, the last is around operations. And that's how the team is taking this very holistic approach to, to how they're approaching it. They're, they're working, too, with um, a consulting firm, uh, Ivy, that's taking all of the data, you know, from the patient data in the health system, the internal workforce data, uh, data in, in the state of New Jersey, putting all of that together to really do the analysis and then come up with um, what they need to do next, which is, would be talking to employees. So they're doing this not in a linear approach, but they're doing it from the perspective of they're doing the analysis. They are talking to employees um, and have been talking to employees. And, and so they'll put all of that quantitative data and the qualitative data together and come up with a game plan and how they're going to approach it from a strategic standpoint and what that implementation and ex execution, where I like to say where the pain points are in the organization and what they need to go after. So it's a really good, um, planning process, they're being very purposeful about it, they're focusing on the right things, and um, I can't wait to see, you know, what comes out of it and how people receive it. You know, I think the power of data information, you know, in this situation, you know, it cannot be overstated, you know, because, I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, that there's a group that's underrepresented. It's another thing to say, well, that group is only 3%, despite its base population being 25%. I mean, I mean that you know that, and then also that gives you metrics. Not only to, so that gives you metrics to to wake you up and identify problems, but it also gives you you know goals you know that you can start to focus on you know and you know real real endpoints because you know, I think there can be as a tendency in this area you know to to think it's soft science if you will, mm -hmm. um, but you know there's a we can identify the issues and, and, you know, and then start to walk them through and find out, to your point, where the pain points are, you know, where the, obstru you know, you know, the obstructions are, you know, as for, you know, as far as, uh, you know, what causes the greatest challenges in the, you know, to, to moving forward. Um, but, you know, all this it makes for an empowered, stronger organization and not, and that organizations just happens as a goal to have the, it's its primary goal to make the health of New Jersey better. Mm -hmm. So it's, so it's, you know, it's hard to overstate the importance of this, you know, or the opportunity or, you know, as you point out, get very excited about taking a very deliberate step-by-step -step approach, you know, and it's not, this is not um, kumbaya, you know, this is, you know, this is a, a structure process to building a world-class, you know, medical system. That's exactly it. And when you talk about building a world-class medical system, it is about the people, it's about, first and foremost, it's about the people. And the people within the workplace that are interfacing with the patients, 
to make sure that they are having the best experience that they can have, given the challenging reasons why they have to come and see your workplace, your work, your workforce. Um, so, so I think that that combination is just really, really critical. It truly is for RWJ Barnabas a business imperative. If there was any other way to say it, it is a business imperative. When you think about the four ways that they're approaching it and what they're looking at, it is all about your business and your business of saving and improving lives. You know, I, um, I mentioned this to you in our previous conversation, the recent podcast with uh, Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen. And uh, President Obama comments at the one point in, a, in the podcast that what he thinks is the greatness of America is in its diversity. Um, and not, he doesn't mean that just, he says clearly, he's, it's not just a potential. He thinks this is one of the things that it's made it's great, but also will make it even greater going forward. You know, it is that our ability to use everybody, you know, to roll in the same direction and, and learn from each other and go together. And I think the same you know, thing is here. This is the kind of thing that can allow us to achieve the goals you know, that we want to achieve. I mean, Robert Wood Johnson, which is, it's an academic institution. Its eventual goal is to cure cancer. Its eventual goal is to eliminate Alzheimer's disease and childhood poverty, you know, and all the things that, that, that make people's lives uh, uh, full of suffering, you know, to better health. So that's our goal as an academic institution. We can't achieve that without achieving these goals. Can't be done. I agree wholeheartedly. Absolutely. So you actually work for, as Chris was saying, for an organization that has a remarkable history in this area as well. You know, Merck has done some really cool things. Yeah, when I stepped into this role seven years ago, the leader of the Global Diversity Inclusion Center of Excellence for Merck, I was stepping on the shoulders of some, some remarkable CDOs previous to me. And they really did a good job in laying the groundwork and the foundation around diversity and inclusion and taking it to a level that was, even back then, was beyond where the rest of the, uh, of the world was, frankly. And when I came in, I you know, was looking around and, and thinking from the standpoint of where the world is, where it's going, and the impact that that has on our employees and our, and our business as a pharmaceutical company. And um, started just putting, going around and listening to people. And I listened to people who, some, you know, that were passionate about diversity and inclusion. I listened to some people that were kind of ambivalent about it. Um, and then I listened to people that just didn't understand the importance of it, frankly. And um, you have to listen to all of those different ideas and beliefs, because if you're going to create a strategy that truly is about diversity, equity, and in inclusion, you have to be able to include all those viewpoints and be able to reach people where they are and bring them forward. And so for the most part, our purpose around diversity and inclusion is just to compel a more diverse workforce for our employees by creating an environment around them of inclusion, equity, empowerment, so that they can do the jobs that we want them to do. And that is our mantra is to save and improve lives. And when it comes to our animal health business, it's to basically ensure that our business and the people that are doing the business and our customers feel the benefits of our services and our products. 
And so that's basically kind of our purpose statement. We call it around diversity and inclusion. It starts with the employee. We create an environment around them where they're able to do what they need to do. And ultimately, it's going to benefit our patients. Um, sort of the, I call it the employee ripple effect is basically what it is. And we look at four different areas. First is fundamentally is creating a diverse environment, um, making sure that our employee base, the diversity of our employee base mirrors the diversity of our patient base. That's number one. Secondly, we want to create that uh, environment of inclusion, that culture of inclusion around the employees so they can feel empowered, engaged, energized to be able to do what we need them to do. The third piece, and people kind of look at me, I remember when I first, you know, got in the role and they were looking at me kind of like I had three heads because I said, you know, at that intersection of diversity and inclusion and business performance, you create a competitive advantage for the organization. You have to look at our research, our manufacturing, our commercial and our sales strategies through a lens of diversity and inclusion because our patients are diverse. And if we don't understand what's going on in their lives, then how can we create our services, our medicines, our drugs to meet their needs? And I always tell them, I said, it's not enough for us to interpret what we think patients in certain communities are gonna need, what their challenges are, but we have to have employees with those same experiences sitting around the table, the boardroom, the conference rooms, the, the manufacturing sites, the research labs, sitting around those tables that are saying, here's what's happening in this community. Here's what some of the obstacles are. Here's why they're not experiencing and having the ultimate health outcomes that we want to see. And they're able to talk through it because otherwise you have a bunch of people that are guessing summarizing and assuming what they think patients need. And that's not how you want to run your business. It's, it's not going to be um, successful. And then the last piece is um, it's not enough that we do what we need to be doing inside our own four walls, but we have to look outside, pull our heads out of the grindstone, look outside, share best practices, learn from other companies so we can together um, increase the, the external environment, the culture, and the business landscape. And that's basically kind of the four areas that we focus in. Representation, inclusive, inclusive culture, integration into the business, and then looking outside and making sure that, that we have an equitable environment when it comes to health equity, when it comes to uh, you know, social determinants of health, all of that. Uh, we call it the situation around the pill, around the vial. Um, to make sure that our patients are experiencing the health outcomes that we want them to, all of our patients across the globe, all walks of life. And that's, that's the critical aspect of, of why we're approaching it. It is remarkable that this as a model, just for leading any organization, just communicating with your people, supporting your people, listening to your people and your customers anyway, and it is incredibly powerful. You know, so you, you, you solve in trying and working to solve you know, and improve you know, a, the diversity environment, you actually make the entire organization more open, more communicating, more fluid, you know, and more powerful. Yeah, and it, you know, the nice thing about it is um, 
when you, we know that we hire people to come into our organizations for functional skills and capabilities, the best physicians, the best nurses, you know, in our case, the best scientists and engineers and salespeople and marketers. And they know that they're coming in with that, with that, that functional capability. But how nice is it to be able to come into an organization and be able to bring also your culture and your experiences and what that is in your community and bring that to the table as well, to be able to talk not just about my, my skills as a marketer and my marketing strategy and my sales strategy, but also to talk about here's what's happening in my community where I live with you know the african-american community or the latino hispanic community or the native american community here's what's happening and and let me talk to you about what's happening in those communities and and being able to bring all of that to work you can you imagine how powerful that employee will feel and how uh well-rounded how they're going to feel how how good they're going to feel about bringing that value um, to the organization, because it truly is value added and knowing that they're adding and contributing to the business and to the organization in so many different ways beyond just their functional skills and capabilities um, and their disciplines. It, it really does make our employees feel truly empowered um, and value added to the company. That is, it's really a, a righteous cycle of healthcare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, that's, it's really, that's really a really neat way of looking about it. And again, I think all of our hospitals are part of their communities and people feel that they're working to support the communities around them. You know, and this gives them even more potential for helping my neighbor, helping my family, helping, uh, you know, to make a real difference right, you know, right at home. And at the same time, you know, at an academic level, you know, making you know, these other broad changes. So truly remarkable. What, what should we be people looking forward to seeing in this area in the next six months, the next year, what kind of niches or information will we be rolling out, do you think? I, I think, you know, as it impacts the employees, I honestly think that the data is going to tell a very compelling story that's going to lead to actions that are going to make sense. So the first thing I think for folks is, you know, from a change management standpoint, everybody intellectually and I think from the heart believe that diversity and inclusion is, is a good thing. It's a moral thing. But I honestly, when it, when it comes down to, well, wait a minute, you mean I have to do something differently? I have to, I have to come in and do this differently and that differently? When it becomes integrated into their day-to-day -day flow of work and flow of life, then you start getting some of the hands up and like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I really did think this was a good idea, but the devil's in the details. And, and so you have to be able to, to tell a very compelling story, story based on, like I said, the, the, here's what we're hearing from employees. Here's what the data is showing. And as a result, this is what we're doing. And I honestly think um, just early on in some of the data that I've seen, um, and, and it hasn't been a lot because, you know, as I said, Ivy, the, the consulting company is putting a lot of this together, but there are some low hanging fruit that I think that everybody is going to say, well, yeah, you're absolutely right. So for example, the course of the pandemic, people have been, you know, impacted by this drastically. Everybody has, but especially those that are in underserved communities, 
underfunded communities, underrepresented um, communities. And, and they're having to have to really struggle with that. So during the height of the pandemic, during the, the, the height of it, when we saw you know, huge numbers, you knew that some of the transportation systems, as an as a example, that some of the bus, you know, the bus drivers, they were getting sick. And so some of the buses and the transportation systems, they weren't as, um, they weren't as, weren't as prevalent as they were um, prior to the pandemic. And so people that, that depend on, employees that depend on the, the, the public transportation system to get to work and have to take one or two, and in some cases, three buses, and then have to walk a little bit to get to work. Well, you need to give them a little bit of slack about arriving a little bit late. And so, you know, in those cases, during the course of 2020, you saw that um, there, when you look at the data, there, there, might be opportunities to, to look at your policies and see how it is disenfranchising or, or um, demonstrating disparate treatment for those that are um, um, underrepresented. And, and so, you know, especially persons of color in this case, uh, women in some cases where they're having to have to be, you know, work, working, they're having to have to find out what they're going to do with their children when the schools were closing, how they're setting up virtual virtual education at home, the daycares were closing. So all of these things were going on in the lives of our employees. And so what were we doing about it? What were we doing to help them? Were we just still stickling, sticking to the rules and all of the regulations and, and, and saying, you know, firing people because they missed their attendance and, and all of that. So some of these things have to really be looked at to say, what is it that we're doing that's getting in the way of us, of us being able to, to have a workforce that it truly does feel engaged and empowered? And, and how that, the ripple effect from the standpoint of your patients, we were talking about this this morning, some of the best ambassadors for diversity and inclusion and for what you want to do in the patient communities are your employees. And so when you think about all the things that we, that we want to be doing from the standpoint of the patients and, and helping them going beyond just their, their, the physical health, but also um, mental health and what's happening from the standpoint of in their communities. If you want to be able to do that and communicate it well, the best ambassadors you have are your employees. So treat your employees well, treat your employees with respect, do the things that you need to be doing with your employee population because they are the best ambassadors that you have for the patients in the communities. And, and that's kind of you know, some of the things I think we're gonna be looking at. Policies that might be changing or contemporizing, let me just say that, contemporizing, because it's really, really important that they are contemporizing, that we're keeping up with the times and keeping up with what's, what's happening in the world and how it's evolving and, and, and making sure that we're able to, to meet the needs of the patient. So there's going to be a few, I, you know, there's going to be changes and people are going to have to learn to understand them. They understand why they're happening and, and then um, embracing them and being able to be ambassadors for that change. And it, it's going to be a process. And it's not going to be easy, but I, it's definitely going to be necessary. And I think one thing that you said in there too, it, it 
makes it even more important to, to even just take a step back and look at it through the bigger lens. DNI, a lot of people associated immediately with race and ethnicity. And as we look at the way the pandemic has affected diverse groups, it's not just race and ethnicity. Yes, that exists 100%. It is also gender and the way that women and working mothers were affected by this pandemic. It is also disabilities and the way that people who have disabilities may be immune compromised, maybe their mobility and they need to touch more surfaces and things like that, the effects that the pandemic has had on them. Veterans, mental health for veterans, this has created a, a huge challenge for that population. And so it's really important to take a step back and as we work our way into these initiatives, remembering that DNI is a much bigger picture than most people tend to, to put that lens. That's absolutely it. We look at it, we tend to look at it very myopically and not thinking about all of the dimensions of diversity. Um, you know, you talk about veterans. 2020, when we think about our veterans, you know, we're, we're used to them going and being deployed across the seas, across the pond, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, et cetera. But being deployed on our own domestic soil to fight what they may not necessarily believe in from the standpoint of the protesters, from the standpoint of uh, being, uh, protecting our capital in January. Um, all of these different things cause another aspect of stress on our veterans from the standpoint of their personal values and beliefs. And, and that really came to a head uh, this past year with them being deployed on domestic, on domestic soil and, and the way that they were looking at it. And, and so that's just an example. When you think about the, you, you talked about uh, persons with disabilities, these individuals had to learn to work differently. They're constantly, every day, every hour, having to have to, I call it troubleshoot, troubleshoot the environment so and adapt and change the environment so they're able to be productive in the workplace. But then within a second, we were told we had to work from home, most of us. And so now, what do I do? I don't have a home office. I have all of the things that I need, whether I'm hearing impaired, whether I'm visually impaired, whatever my, whatever my challenge might be. I had all those things set up in my office at work. And now, like, how do I do this at home? How do I change everything? Uh, individuals who have various different disabilities from an ergonomic standpoint. You know, people didn't have that stuff all the time in their homes from the standpoint of a work setup. They had it from a personal setup and not a working environment. So, you know, all of that. And, and we talked about women and having to have to be the new teachers and professors and CFOs and COOs and primary care physicians in their respective families. And, you know, just the stress of that alone, we know that 2020, we saw uh, just in, in record amounts of women leaving the workforce because they just could not manage it all. And, um, and so, you know, having those conversations with them to, to, to say, what is, first of all, are you okay? What do you need? How can we help you? How can we help you to manage it? What type of contracting do we, you need with your manager to help you to manage in this situation? All of those things, you know, are, are really, really important um, from the standpoint of all of the dimensions of diversity that are happening. And of course, 
you know, from the standpoint of race and ethnicity, we know that COVID adversely uh, impacted those in, 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 in the persons of color uh, from the standpoint of you know, Native American, Latino, Hispanic, Asian, and, uh, and, and Black, of course. And then the pandemic from the standpoint of the hate crimes that we're still seeing in the, in the Pan-Asian community is just, it is just so incredibly sad that this is going on um, with our Pan-Asian colleagues and, and the, the hate crimes that we're seeing and the rise in the xenophobia, it has just been so very, very challenging for this community. There's just, it's, it, you know, 2020 was a time where DNI was just amplified and, and everyone, unless you were just hidden under a rock, um, understood the importance of it. It, it calls for new leadership skills too um, with, our, with our leaders, um, different leadership skills of being able to, all those things that we made fun of in the past, those soft skills um, are just pr prominent and, and you need them. They're a necessity now with leaders and managers to be able to lead inclusively and um, put psychological safety around their employees and listening with empathy. All of those different things are so very critical now. It's interesting. So many of the things you're talking about now in building this are making our organization, of course, society itself, but in this case, our organization prepared for the next pandemic, if you will. You know, I mean, we have in our lifetime been through multiple pandemics, none as bad as this one, but Ebola, H1N1, uh, uh, HIV, and now, and now COVID, and now uh, COVID nineteen, there will be more traumas that come forward. Um, and as an organization, that is our job to respond to the community and be ready for that. And so much what you're talking about is building the foundations to be a better healthcare system that is ready or more ready to you know to move forward. And this country, unfortunately, has a history of neglecting its public health. Um, and not having those, those structures. And I, and I, while I would hope that we will continue to fund public health initiatives, uh, history uh, doesn't necessarily guarantee that. So that I think it becomes a critical role for us to be ready for the next hurricane, the next, you know, the next uh, violent event or the next disease. So this is, you know, we learn these lessons, we build on top, we become stronger and we get ready for as uh, going forward, I think it's so interesting that you're already anticipating the emotional needs of vets who had to be act on their own soil in a conflict environment. I, you know, I didn't perceive that as a kind of conflict, but yes, of course, I thought, so that's already you're thinking ahead of what we learned from the past. Now, where are we going and what are, who's going to be now going to have these needs? I, that's a really good example of that kind of thinking and that building that kind of an institution. Let's also be clear that so many of these processes, these policies, these different actions that we're going to take on this journey align 100% with what it means to be a high reliability organization and what it means to RWJBH as we grow through this HRO journey. Absolutely. And, and coming out on the, on, on the other side of this, you know, it's an evolution, but the, the work that RWJ Barnabas has done and is doing and is going to be doing, you guys are gonna be such a role model for other health systems across, not just New Jersey, but I mean, across the nation. It's just, I'm excited to be a part of this journey. 
We're certainly excited to have you leading us on this journey and really thrilled, you know, for your insights and obviously for taking the time to talk to us you know, today. So it's a remarkable opportunity for all of us and look forward to working with you going forward. Well, thank you for having me. And it's been fun. And, you know, I just I wish everybody the best of luck. Just hang on there. I know all of you are working many, many, many hours and, and uh, to your to your point, haven't been able to take showers, but the vaccinations are coming. And thank you so much for all of the work that you all do. Celeste Warren, Vice President of the Global Diversity and Inclusion Center of Excellence at Merck and a member of our RWJ Barnabas Health Corporate Board of Trustees, the chair of the board's Ending Racism Together Committee. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. As always, you can subscribe to Medically Necessary on all of your favorite podcast platforms. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. We have the playlist on YouTube, and you can always find us on the Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital Medical Staff Portal. For Dr. Jim Salwitz. For Chris Onig. Thank you for listening. Medically Necessary, brought to you by the Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital Foundation.